Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing Extra, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist at the Institute for Government, stepping briefly into the presenter's chair to bring you this bonus episode to discuss the Chancellor's forthcoming spring statement. This special edition of the podcast is supported by the Federation of Small Businesses. The outlook for the economy and household incomes has shifted dramatically since Rishi Sunak delivered his budget in October. The UK economy survived the Omicron wave of coronavirus relatively unscathed, and all legal restrictions have now been lifted. But as the impact of COVID recedes, other crises have grown. Concerns about energy prices, wider inflation and their impact on the cost of living were already growing at the time of the October budget. But in 2022, prices have risen even more rapidly, further exacerbated by the conflict in Ukraine. In normal times, spring statements are supposed to be economic and fiscal updates without any policy announcements. But Sunak has already announced new policies once this year, a £9 billion package in February to help with energy costs. And the war in Ukraine has exacerbated price rises and created calls for further defence spending. To help discuss what all of this might mean for what we'll hear from the Chancellor this week, I'm delighted to be joined by two of my IFG colleagues and two special guests. I have with me today Jill Rutter, Senior Fellow at the IFG and a former Treasury Civil Servant. Welcome, Jill. Hi, Gemma. Tom Pope is Deputy Chief Economist. Hi, Tom. Hello, Gemma. And I'm delighted to be joined by our two special guests today. Tim Pitt is a partner at Flint Global and a former Special Advisor to both Philip Hammond and Sajid Javid at the Treasury. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Hi, Gemma. And last but certainly not least, Martin McTague, National Chair of the Federation of Small Businesses. Hi, Martin. Hi, Gemma. Tim, what's likely to be going on at the moment in number 10 and number 11 as we run up to the spring statement? Well, right right, right at the moment, all, all the big decisions have been made or should have been made anyway. Certainly during the course of last week, there's a sort of major measures deadline, which the OBR set. So all of those decisions will be made. And now it will be all about or should be all about the speech, the, the narrative and how you're going to land this thing on Wednesday. So you're sort of moving from the policy design phase into the sort of media messaging narrative straight politics phase of it and you know i think it's a very very difficult backdrop for the chancellor this time there is a huge amount expected of him we're about to see a massive hit to living standards you know sort of the the biggest squeeze on incomes in in 50 years and ultimately there is only so much he can do to ease the pain and everyone is expecting him to be able to make it all go away and, and the reality is 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 that he can't so i think it is going to be a, a a kind of pretty difficult week for 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 him i'm sure we'll see a pretty big package of support but and and beyond that i think a very very tricky 12 to 18 months for not only for households, but also politically for for, for for the government, given the economic backdrop. Well, let's start with that economic backdrop. The war in Ukraine has been leading news bulletins for the last month. And such a seismic geopolitical event has effects in many different spheres. But here today, I guess we'll focus on that economic backdrop. Looking at that, what's changed since the autumn budget, Tom? You've been looking a bit at this. What's, what's shifted since October when Sunak last made an announcement? Yeah, so back in October, the outlook was for a reasonable economic recovery from COVID, um, albeit with that pretty anemic medium-term growth that we've been suffering since the financial crisis. And inflation was expected to be relatively high by recent standards this year, reaching about 4.5%. But since then, as you say, things have changed. Supply chain problems um, that were already evident in the autumn have, have worsened and energy prices have risen much further and exacerbated, as you say, by the war in Ukraine. And that means that growth is now expected to be weaker, certainly this year, if you look at what other forecasters like the Bank of England are saying. And inflation is also now expected to be much higher. So the latest from the Bank of England last week 
suggested that inflation could be high as, as high as 8% in April, which would be twice almost what the OBR forecast back in October. And that means that unless wage growth is able to match, which seems pretty unlikely, the cost of living squeeze, which was already there a bit in that October forecast, now looks like it's going to be much worse. And obviously it was February when Sunak last announced any significant measures to help households. Have things even shifted since then? Yes, yeah, so the, the war in Ukraine in particular has made things worse, and that's for a couple of reasons. The one is that we rely quite a lot in Ukraine for grains. They produce a lot of a lot of the world's grain. So that means that food prices are likely to, to go up as a result of this. And of course, there's been further disruption to energy as well. So the energy price cap, which is that limit on how much households can be charged for their utility bills, was set in February and prices will increase by about 50% in April. And that was the motivation for that initial support from Sunak. Energy prices are now even higher. So we should expect prices to go up again when the cap is reset in October. But that doesn't mean that only extra impacts will come in October. Other prices will increase before that. People are already seeing the impacts at the pumps and we're going to see further increases in food prices as well. So since February, we now expect inflation to be higher in the short term in April and to continue to be higher for longer throughout this year, at least. Thanks, Tom. Martin, Tom hinted there at the fact that households are facing very high inflation and that unless their wages keep pace with that, they're going to be facing a real squeeze on their living standards. How are businesses faring? Is there any prospect that businesses can afford to offer substantial wage rises this year? No, I think businesses are being squeezed from all sorts of angles. I mean, the the thing that jumps out at me as well is that from a consumer's point of view, they've at least got the cap in place, which allows a limited amount of energy price to be passed on. And when it comes to the big corporates, they can buy on forward contracts. And a lot of them are finding that they can get reasonable deals if they buy on forward contracts. What happens, though, is the small businesses are completely squeezed in the middle. So they've got these rapidly increasing energy prices with no limit. They can't buy on forward contracts. The labor costs are shooting up. And to add to that misery, they're going to face a a tax hike in April. Tim, that's a pretty bleak backdrop. How concerned do you think the Chancellor will be going into this statement about this squeeze on households and on businesses? Uh, well, I, th- I mean, I think they're, they're obviously two interrelated questions. I think they're also slightly two separate questions. And I think the Chancellor's focus, obviously, the ch- Chancellor will think that, that business is important. I think I think actually we'll see what will be interesting to see is not just what short-term support he provides to business, but also the longer term. It sounds like we might get a, a tax strategy setting out some of his longer-term vision in terms of what he's going to do on corporation tax, what he's going to do on the apprenticeship levy, and, and things like that. I, th- I think, bluntly, the, the kind of political reality is that his focus in the short term is very much going to be on households. You know, this is going to be a very, very difficult period for millions of, of, of households. And I think that that is the bit that is politically potentially nightmarish for for the Tories. And the risk isn't just the scale of the hit, but how quickly it, it passes. So we, we saw under the coalition that actually you can take a, politically at least, you, know, you can take a hit to living standards for a few years, as long as by the time of the election, real wages are rising. That is what happened in 2015, and the Conservatives won, won a majority. I think the risk for the Tories and the concern that, that I would have is that on the current forecast, this squeeze doesn't just last for the next year. It lasts well into next year and potentially most of next year, all the way up to the next election. And if you've got real wages falling going into the next election, then I think that that is a real, real problem for the Tories. Uh, so I think, given those stakes, there is the, all the pressure on the chancellor to act. You know, is 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 on the household side of things, and I think we will see 
a pretty substantial package from him. But ultimately, you know, out the average household looks like it might take a hit of sort of twelve hundred pounds next year. He's only ever going to be able to take the edge off that. That you know, he can't take away all the pain for for everyone. So I think it is going to be a very difficult period for millions of people, and I think it's going to be a very difficult period for the Tories politically. Just before we go into a bit more detail on what sorts of measures the Chancellor might announce this week, Tom, we've sort of talked about what the economic picture means for households and businesses, and that's pretty gloomy. What does it mean for the Chancellor's borrowing numbers? Is he at risk of breaking those new fiscal rules that he set out only just in October? Yeah, this one is a little bit more complicated because there are lots of things that are moving in different directions. So tax revenues are actually looking a lot stronger at the moment than was expected back in October. And it could be that that means that revenues look stronger in the medium term. And for what matters for the Chancellor's fiscal rules is that he needs tax revenues to cover day-to-day spending by the third year of the forecast, so by 2024. So that that could help. But then on the other hand, um, debt interest payments are likely to be quite a bit higher due to both higher interest rates and inflation. What tends to be most important for the public finances is the forecast size of the economy. When the economy is bigger, tax revenues are higher. That tends to be good. Now, as I mentioned earlier, real growth is likely to be worse now than it was in October. But the cash size of the economy might actually be bigger because of that big increase in inflation. And a bigger cash size of the economy could mean bigger tax revenues in cash terms as well. And government spending was set just in October. Most government spending set at the spending review in cash terms. So actually, the deficit could easily be lower in the medium term rather than higher at this forecast because those cash revenues will increase and most spending will stay the same in cash terms. Um, so I don't think those fiscal rules are at risk, but we should note that this will mainly be improved or stable public finances achieved by squeezing public spending in real terms because inflation is now much higher than what we thought back in October. Okay, so the, the economic situation is looking pretty gloomy for the Wednesday announcement and the Chancellor is facing lots of pressure to do something more to help households and businesses and indeed many other European countries have already started to do more to help their businesses and households. So Jill, let me start with you because we at the Institute of Government have been big proponents of Chancellors only holding one budget a year and not changing policy too often. So this spring statement in theory should be an economic update without big policy announcements. But do you think the special circumstances mean that actually he would be justified this time in doing more, even though it's not a proper budget? I think, yes, I have to say, when we said only do one fiscal event a year, that was because we thought that chancellors were hunting around for measures to put into their announcements. They were sort of on a twice yearly rabbit hunt to get the headlines. And we thought that led to too much chopping and changing, too many measures, frankly, and thought that actually concentrating everything else into one statement as a chancellor's, you know, finance ministers do in other countries was a very desirable change. And I still think it is. That said, when circumstances change dramatically, I think the chancellor does need to move dramatically. I mean, what's been very notable is that this chancellor's actually had multiple fiscal events, some of which are budgets or spring statements or whatever else. Others are just announcements of very, very big packages. I mean, indeed, you know, the thing that he's known for, his big whatever it takes package on furlough and things came, you know, within days, uh, certainly a couple of weeks of his first ever budget, because 
the scale of the COVID pandemic, the need for lockdown happened in the almost immediate aftermath of that first budget. So I think chances have to be flexible and adapt. And I don't think uh, it would hang on. But the interesting thing is how much does he decide to try to hang on to until this autumn? As Tom was saying, on the domestic energy front, he does look as though he may be trying to say, so home heating, he may be trying to say, well, I did a February package related to the reset of the price cap in February. That's the price hit that's coming in in April. So there'll be nothing more from me until we see where things are going in the autumn. So it'd be very interesting to see how much does he try to hold back till then and retain a bit of a grip on the fiscal timetable. Yeah, it's a really interesting point about that kind of speculation that he might try and hold off until the autumn. And there was speculation over this weekend that what he might do would be something on fuel duties, which is obviously an area where consumers are already feeling the hit of higher prices much more dramatically because that's fed straight through into petrol and diesel prices. Tom, what what are the the Chancellor's main options for helping households? Does that fuel duty cut seem plausible? Is that a good place for him to go? Yeah, there are obviously lots of levers that the Chancellor could pull, fuel duty being one of them. I think we can probably helpful to broadly split the types of thing he can do into three categories. Um, So one would be broad measures that support the incomes of most households. That would include a repeat or an extension of those measures that he announced in February, for example, that £150 council tax rebate for most households. That would also include measures on tax. So Labour have called for a delay to the national insurance rise that's due this April, although that would be a bigger benefit to, to households further up the income distribution, higher income households. It's also been suggested over the weekend there could be a possible rise to the threshold when you you start paying national insurance, which would be more progressive than than delaying the rate rise. That's one set of measures. Then the second is measures that focus specifically on supporting the incomes of the poorest households, who are the ones that are least able to adjust and have savings, say, to, to deal with rising prices. And the most obvious thing to do there would be to uprate benefit payments in April in line with inflation in April, which could be around 8%, rather than inflation back in September. That's the usual uprating rule is that you you uprate benefits in line with inflation the previous September. But last September, inflation was only 3%, and clearly things have moved on a lot since then. So that's the second package. And then the third, which is where fuel duty comes in, is that you might try to support the households that spend the most on the items where prices are rising the fastest. And you do that by affecting the price, could include a cut to VAT on or energy levies on household bills, for example, or, or that fuel duty cut. So the benefit of that is that it gives the most money to the households that, whose budgets are kind of most heavily spent on those items where prices really are rocketing. But at the same time, on fuel duty specifically, that incentivizes more driving at a time when that's probably not something that we want to do. It's also not particularly well targeted at households towards the bottom of the income distribution. And the other specific concern with fuel duties is that they've been frozen in cash terms for more than a decade, despite being due to increase in line with inflation every year. Um, So I think we can pretty much assume now that increasing fuel duties in cash terms is not something politically that chancellors seem able to do. So say you cut fuel duties by 5p, I don't think we're ever going to get that 5p added on. So really, that would just accelerate the demise of 
this already declining revenue source. Martin, you already talked about the fact that businesses, particularly small businesses, are also really feeling the pinch from energy price rises. What will your members be looking for from the Chancellor on Wednesday? The biggest thing we're looking for is some kind of movement on national insurance. I think the best way to frame it, in some ways it, it refers back to something Tom said, is when the the Chancellor bought in the um, employment allowance, it sheltered small businesses with four employees from national insurance. So that allowance was quite effective for the very small, the most vulnerable businesses. But since this increase or when this increase comes in, that will suddenly drop down to two employees. So this has a significant effect on the most vulnerable businesses. And we think that's an area that he can move quite easily. We know he's unlikely to reverse his policy on the 1.25% increase, but he could do something about the allowances. Tim, you said at the start that you think he's probably got quite a large package up his sleeve for Wednesday. Where do you think he's going to target support? Is he going to help those most vulnerable low-income households? How is he going to any idea how he might treat different types of businesses? Where do you think it's going to go? Well, I, I think I think the priority should absolutely be the most vulnerable households. I mean, the, the, the Treasury will say, you know, you can't just look at the package on Wednesday and say this is it, right? The Treasury will, I think, rightly argue that there is a significant support already in place. So we're going to see a big uplift in the national living wage, for example, coming in April. A big increase in universal credit actually was announced at the autumn budget through reducing the, the, the taper rate, and you've obviously got the, the existing package of support. So, I, But I, I do think we will need to go further. I don't think we're going to see a upgrade all the way to 8% in terms of benefits that, that Tom was talking about, but we might see something on UC. It seems very likely we're going to get a fuel duty cut. I think if we weren't going to get a fuel duty cut, the sort of um, briefing in the press would have been very different. I think the Treasury would have slid, tried to slap that down a while ago. And then I think, the, you know, the, 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 the interesting question then is is what he does on, on personal tax, because, you know, helping the vulnerable absolutely should be the priority. But the reality is, swathes of middle England are about to get hammered and feel a real squeeze too. So he needs a package, yes, that protects the vulnerable, but also provides broader support. That's important, not just in policy terms, but political terms. Lots of those middle income voters are obviously conservatives. And I think for the Chancellor himself, he knows he needs to to show the parliamentary party who are disgruntled with the scale of last year's tax rises that he's going to cut taxes. And if you're in the personal tax cut space, I think it's a sort of no-brainer that raising the NICS threshold is a much better policy than than reversing the the new health and social care levy. It benefits, as as Tom was saying, people lower down and in the middle of the income distribution much more than than, than reversing the levy, which is essentially the vast majority of the benefits go to those in the top 25% of the income distribution. On fuel duties, do you agree with Tom's take that if we cut the duty rate now, it's never going back up again? Well, I mean, I feel very sorry. I mean, the, the poor official in the Treasury, well, it's a, a series of officials in the Treasury who every year of the last 12 years has put up their dutiful piece of advice on fuel duty, recommending that the Chancellor uprates it. And every every year, the Chancellor sends back the stub saying, thanks very much, but no, I won't be doing that. Now is faced with 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 with, ha- with having to cut it. So, so, so yes, I think that is, I mean, that is obviously the Treasury concern. The, the question in my mind is, is there a way of linking it and passing the legislation when when you cut it that automate automatically, for example, makes it kick in once oil prices get to us to a, to a, to a certain level? I you don't have to get it back through Parliament again. So, is there a neat way of doing the legislation that allows us to kick back up once once oil prices have 
have, have eased off. Uh, without that, if you've then got to go back to Parliament and get them to increase it at any point in the future, I agree with Tom, that is very, very difficult to see that happen. And just, just coming in on that, Gemma, it's interesting what Tim said, because when George Osborne was first Chancellor, he had floated this idea that you used fuel duty almost to smooth the change in petrol prices, that you had some sort of automatic rebalancing mechanism that would, you know, mean that it sort of smoothed the impact on motorists of changes in in global oil prices. But I'm not sure anyone worked out how on earth to do it. Otherwise they might have might have done it back then. But I think that's uh, that would be quite an interesting move um, to do it. I mean, statutory index linking might also be quite helpful, but uh, on that and other excise duties. So you didn't have to legislate every year anyway. But fuel duty, fuel duty long term is on its way out anyway, as the government promotes its switch to electric vehicles. So I think government may be less fussed about fuel duty than it would have been a few years ago before that was a major plank of government policy. Yes, I mean, you're right about the experience with George Osborne. It always seems to me that the idea of using fuel duty rates to smooth prices is always much more politically attractive when prices are high and that means a cut to duty rates than the idea that you put duty rates up when the prices are then going down. But yes, it'd be very interesting to see if they can come up with anything on that that means they don't have to then re-legislate for the rise. Jill, just quickly, perhaps we can take a slightly longer term view of the measures that we might see this week to help deal with the energy crisis. Because obviously, the crisis requires not just a short term response, but it also raises questions about our longer term energy policy and energy security. I mean, the, the debate has been quite mixed on this in recent weeks. Some Conservative MPs have even suggested that the crisis shows that we should be moving away from our net zero 2050 commitment. What's the logic there is, and what, what are your kind of take on whether there are things that the Chancellor could announce this week that would both help in the short term and be consistent with our sort of longer term energy policy? Well, it's very interesting. I mean, that there's been a sort of move on the Conservative backbenches for some time to say that the government needs to be more aware and take more care with the costs of net zero. And we think uh, that the Chancellor may have a bit of bit of sympathy with backbenchers on that. That's now been joined by people who say that what has been exposed is the dependence on Russian gas and oil, and we need a resourcing strategy, if you like, to find our energy from elsewhere. And if that means a bit more domestic oil production, means fracking, means that we might sort of see switches to coal elsewhere, then that needs to take you know priority in the short run and maybe net zero has to take a take a step or two to back. What's been quite interesting, it looks as like there might be a bit of a battle going on in government here, because others like, for example, Kwasi Kwarteng, business and energy secretary, has been tweeting quite vigorously that renewables are the way forward. And we also see briefings, very interesting in any of Tim's views on this, that there's an argument going on between the Prime Minister and, and the Chancellor about new nuclear and reinvigorating the nuclear programme as a source of energy in the future that is both homegrown but also compatible with the government's net zero ambitions. I think one of the really interesting things, though, so there's stuff going on on the supply side. I think one of the really interesting questions for net zero and the current situation is the extent to which the government is prepared to do anything on the demand side. The Prime Minister said a little bit about energy efficiency, but the government's net zero strategy last autumn 
was widely felt to fall very short of what was really needed on energy efficiency, which is one of the ways that you can actually reduce fossil fuel use but you also help people with cost of living, et cetera. So it seems to be a win-win-win because it's very compatible, your net zero targets. But the government's done very little on that, isn't even spending what it promised to do in its manifesto. So it'd be very interesting whether the Chancellor goes back to that at all. I think it'd be very interesting to see, we had some talks about the uh, sort of overall investment strategy. Does the chance do anything to incentivize? Business investment in energy efficiency removed some of the barriers last time in making a move that CBI had asked for about the impact on business rates. But does he go any further on encouraging that sort of investment in energy efficiency net zero? And the government generally has not talked at all about demand reduction, just simply using less of stuff. I mean, that's in a sense, the sort of frustrating thing if they go for a fuel duty cut is there are clearly people who everybody would say are essential drivers need to drive for work, drive small fuel-efficient cars. There are equally people who are driving for leisure and driving around in giant SUVs who will benefit significantly more from an across-the-board cut. And is the government sending the right messages there about things like fuel efficiency, stuff like that, which it needs to? But The government may just be hoping that the price hikes alone are enough to send consumers looking for all the demand reduction that they can tolerate and reconcile with their lifestyles. So it'd be very interesting to see whether the Chancellor mentions net zero at all. Last time in his autumn budget, he had a heading in his speech which said net zero, but he himself, I don't think, uttered the words. So there's obviously a lot of pressure on the Chancellor to do something to help households and businesses further. But Tom, you hinted at a third area of pressure on Rishi Sunak, which is that public service budgets were set in October, but under the assumption that inflation would be much lower than it is now turned out to be and is likely to be. In addition, the war in Ukraine has also increased discussion and demands for spending on defence as well. Tim, starting with that question of Ukraine, do you think the war in Ukraine means the government should rethink its defence budget plans? Look, I mean, I think it's obviously a, a, a kind of seismic geopolitical event that looks like it is, you know, going to have major long-term structural implications. And I think any event like that absolutely should cause you to revisit your existing plans and and and, and your priorities. So. Yes, I think there are lots of people calling for an increase in in defence spending. I think it's clearly something that needs to be seriously looked at. I don't think that needs to be done overnight, and I don't think the Chancellor needs to do that on Wednesday at all. But clearly, that 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 is a conversation that that needs to be had. Obviously, there are implications if you go down that path for increasing defence spending. That has knock on implications for spending elsewhere, or on the tax system, or on or on borrowing. So it's something that needs to be looked at in 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 the cold light of day, uh, and not kind of rushed and panicked into. But clearly, there is there is a case for it. I mean, I think the, the, the other thing I would definitely say on the spending side, to, to Tom's point, is I cannot see the spending review totals from that were, that were set out in the autumn now holding given given the inflation forecast. Again, not something that the Chancellor is needs to fix or is going to fix on, on Wednesday, but certainly come the autumn. I think given the, the erosion in, in the real terms value of, of, of those spending review totals, I can't see a world in which, in which they don't get topped up. And so going back to the fiscal point, he's going to want to keep some headroom back so that, so that he can do that, 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 that in the autumn. So Tom, let's dig into those numbers a bit more, because at the time of the spending review in October, we said that the settlements in the spending review looked 
generous for most departments. But how does more recent higher inflation figures change that? Yes, but based on if we focus on day to day spending, back in October, those plans implied real increases of over 3% a year, which is sort of rivals the mid 2000s new labour spending reviews um, in terms of generosity, far, far more generous than anything we've seen since then. But inflation, the prospects for inflation have increased a lot just since then. Um, and that would turn a over 3% a year increase into something more like only 2% a year. That's still obviously more generous than what we've seen since 2010. But it's nothing like the kind of uplift that the Chancellor seemed to be promising back in October. And it's even less than that for those departments that got below average increases. So the defence budget is a notable example where actually overall spending was was falling slightly, even on back on old inflation forecasts, it will be falling fairly significantly on the new forecasts. The education department also only got about a 2% increase. So that's that's barely going to be above inflation now. Yeah, so kind of across the boards, really, what, what looked very generous now looks now looks middling to stingy, I would say. Jill, Tim mentioned there that he doesn't think the Chancellor perhaps should or will revisit those plans yet, but could wait till the autumn. Do you agree with that? Is he, do you think he's under need to do something more quickly? I think he'll be quite unkeen to do that, simply because budgets haven't really, really kicked in. He was already signalling at the weekend that the defence spending plans, for instance, we know you're going to be under pressure on defence spending, not least from the backbenches, but that you know those had been based on the integrated review. They'd already taken account of the fact that Russia was deemed to be a threat. So I think he will be trying to hold the line. I mean, the big immediate thing for him that will be coming into view will be the pay review bodies, which will be reporting for the pay settlements in the summer. So one of the things he may be worried about is what are they going to say? Treasury will no doubt be trying to sort of stick to lines on affordability, but affordability in these circumstances is going to mean big, big real terms reductions for most people. So he may be about to have a very difficult summer from that, and it's very hard to see how he will really hold the line there. But again, I think he'd be very reluctant to get ahead of the curve by reopening those envelopes that have only been set so recently. And that remember that was that was a spending review that uh, we hadn't seen since George Osborne. I think had done the last proper comprehensive spending review. It seemed to be mentioning George Osborne today rather more than I expected. But uh, but I don't think the Chancellor will want to think that his spending review totals have lasted less than six months. Tim, on that point about public sector pay, how vulnerable do you think Rishi Sunak is to pressure to do more there? Again, it's you know it, it, it's a kind of perennial challenge for uh, chancellors, the pay review round. I remember, I think it was when I was at the Treasury in 2017 or 2018, I think we, we had a similar issue in the inflation, I think post-Brexit because of the devaluation of the currency there was a knock-on impact on inflation it was going to be transitory but ultimately i think inflation was three or three and a half percent when we went to the pay review bodies that is obviously a much more difficult political environment and it made you know we had a public sector pay freeze in place or a one percent increase at, at that point and it made it much more difficult the chancellor's got that you know on stilts basically coming coming his way come the summer, so so I think that is, that is going to be very difficult for him. The the line that the Treasury always use relatively effectively is, well, what's happening in the private sector, and you know, giving a significantly bigger increase to those in in, in the kind of public sector if people in the private sector are are having a real real wage 
cut is 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 the sort of argument that they are going to hide that they will try and hide behind or not hide behind but that that is a i think fairly legitimate argument for 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 them to use but you know the reality is if you've got inflation running at eight percent and you thought it was going to be running at three or four percent when you set your initial spending totals you you know you the reality is you're probably going to have to adjust because of that and martin what do you think that private sector picture is going to be looking like is the Will there be much in the way of pay rises? Yeah, there will be pay rises because small businesses are having to compete for a shrinking pool of labour. But the big the big thing that I, I think is very easy to underestimate is that everybody's playing down the expectations for anything significant in this spring statement and seeing it as a staging point for something in October. Well, delay is really dangerous at the moment. You know, the latest ONS figures said that 5% of businesses were fearing for their future. You know, that's 250,000 businesses and all their employees. There's a real crunch coming up in April where a lot of the protection and the services that were introduced as part of the COVID program will be withdrawn. And I think you've got weakened businesses who are going to be hit by this tax increase at a time when they can't get the labor they need, that costs are rocketing, you are creating the perfect storm and waiting until October could be far too late. And that actually seems a good good place to wrap up today's discussion. We've talked about the sort of gloomy economic outlook that faces the Chancellor and the many, many calls on him to do more to help households, businesses and public services. Martin, you you said before that your sort of number one priority for small businesses was something to help those employers of very a small number of workers so that they continue to have some additional support. Is there anything else in particular that you're looking for from the Chancellor this week, not delayed until the October? I mean, we would like to see a, you know, a significant move on business rates, although that seems unlikely in the current climate. I think there's plenty of signalling about fuel. I think fuel duty will drop. And it needs to drop by at least five pence a litre to be to have any significant impact. So we'd like to see a couple of those things at least in the uh, the spring statement. And Tim, apart from the things that have been briefed out over this weekend, is there anything in particular you're expecting to see from the Chancellor this week that perhaps hasn't hit the headlines yet? Well, no, I mean the the, the experience that. Rishi Sunak over, over his previous budgets is that most of the things that he is going to do, not all of them, most of them make it into the into the media ahead of a budget or a or a or a statement. Uh, that is inevitable in the in the Treasury that th- these things always happen. The sort of lesson that I think people have learned from previous Sunak budgets and statement is that the measure briefed or that makes its way out there, he often goes a lot further than people think on that specific measure. So be that on fuel duty or be that on national insurance thresholds rise or whatever it is he tends to move big on whatever the measure the the the, the measure it is that, that he's focused on so i imagine there'll there'll be a surprise on the upside not on all of those measures necessarily but on certainly one of those measures that is briefed out there i imagine we'll see quite a big move and jill any thoughts from you on a, a spring statement rabbit i think the interesting question i think one interesting question is whether the chancellor does signal any sort of longer term direction he the last budget he so sort of basically announced that he was spending loads more and then had that rather odd statement at the end about how he fundamentally was a bit was a low tax chancellor and wanted to wanted to cut taxes in his May's lecture 
that he gave a few weeks ago, which was setting out his long-term philosophy, he was talking about you know what could be done to tackle underinvestment. He even mentioned that Brexit uncertainty had uh, had stalled business investment and suggested a redesign of the corporate tax system in in effect undoing the tax system for corporations that Nigel Lawson, whose picture hangs over him in the Treasury, first set out in his May's lecture sort of you know nearly four decades ago. So it'd be very interesting to see whether we're moving to a very different corporation tax structure. He said he wanted to do more on skills. I think mentioned uh, Tim mentioned the apprenticeship levy. Does he do anything to do that? So is this all short-term stuff to try and bail households out? And I think I think he will probably try and do something that looks big on households, but big, but not sustained, I think is the chancellor's watchword. So like his energy package, things that don't sort of build into the system as far as he can possibly avoid it. But I think the interesting question is, does he set us up for some long-term reforms in his autumn budget? Yes, and I was very interested to hear Tim's suggestion that we might see some sort of longer-term tax strategy. That's certainly something that Jill, you and Tom and I have been calling for in our previous work on tax reforms. So. He's the first chance to talk about tax strategy as such in the May's lecture, which was um, music to our ears. Yes. So fingers crossed that does materialise this week as well. Well, with that, that brings our special edition of Inside Briefing Extra to a close. My huge thanks to Jill Rutter and Tom Pope and to our special guests, Tim Pitt, and especially to Martin McTague for taking part and to the FSB for sponsoring this edition of Inside Briefing. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast channel, IFG Live. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a review. And do also check out all our analysis of the Spring Statement later this week at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk.